35. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You can be seated. This is the word of the Lord this morning. This is a challenging passage for us, but sometimes I wonder if we know how challenging it is. Sometimes when I read passages about, like, about this, about being a servant of all and laying down your life for others, um, sometimes I just think my brain kind of checks out. Well, that just means I need to be nicer to people, right? But, but there's something really revolutionary that's happening here. There's something really deep and really transformational that is being said in the words of Jesus here. As we read the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark has always been pointing to the cross. It's always had the cross in its sights. Even from the very beginning, from Jesus' baptism, this has been Jesus' call, his vocation. It's been his mission as he knows that the cross is ahead. And the farther along you get in Mark's gospel, the more the cross comes into full view. Now, the first statement that I can see here uh, from James and John, I think is just hilarious. Um, when they say, teacher, uh, we just want you to do for us whatever we ask, right? I think of like a three or a four-year-old saying, mom, I'm going to ask you for something, but just don't say no, right? That's kind of what's going on here. And, uh, and Jesus says, well, what is it that you want? And they say, well, we want to sit at your right and your left hand. He says, do you know what that means? This baptism that you would have to be part of and this cup that you have to drink. And they're like, sure. Well, I picture them looking at one another. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, it's going to be tough. We're ready for it. Um, but I don't know that they actually know what they're getting into here. In Mark's gospel, this is actually the third time that Jesus has mentioned his coming suffering and death. He's embraced this. Um, actually, he points back to Isaiah 40 through 55, which is this song of the suffering servant. And it's this character that is pointed to um, that will suffer and will die. And that's Jesus sees that as his vocation. That's his mission. Jesus has always been called to suffer and to die. The cross is at the heart of Christianity. But just because Jesus is driven by his vocation, just because he's convinced of it and he knows this is his mission, just because he said it over and over again, implicitly or explicitly to the disciples, still doesn't mean that they get it, right? They're wrestling with this. They're struggling with this. Maybe they thought, it seems like they thought, that they were just walking with Jesus to Jerusalem as like a march to glory, right? Or a march to triumph, or they're going to conquer all of the enemies, and it is a march to glory, right? But Jesus radically redefines what glory is in the first place. 
for the cross, um, maybe they thought at this point that when Jesus is talking about his suffering and his death that's going to come, maybe they thought, oh, he's just being metaphorical. It's going to be really difficult. It's going to be tough. We've got to convince a lot of people. But ultimately, we're going to conquer and defeat all of our enemies. But for Jesus, the cross wasn't just a bump in the road on the way to triumph. It wasn't just a rough patch that we kind of have to make it through. For Jesus, the cross was God's way of taking the power and authority structures of the world and flipping it on its head, right? Something different, something amazing is happening here. And I think for us to understand this, for us to understand how revolutionary this is, we have to look at what did power and authority mean in the first century, Now, some of you I know are not real history people, so hang with me here, all right? We're going to talk a little bit about history. In the first century, the civilized world was ruled primarily by the Roman Empire, right? It was this huge empire extended along most of the civilized world. And, uh, And at this time, the Roman Empire would rule in a really interesting way. So what they would do is they would conquer a group of people, but instead of just conquering that group of people and making them all Roman, they'd do something interesting. They would set up a puppet king, And usually that puppet king had some loyalty to the Roman Empire so that they could be controlled. But that puppet king also was most likely from among that people group. And that group was told that they could practice their religion. They actually could practice all of their cultural kind of things that they did. They could speak their own language. So for the Jewish people, when they're under Roman occupation, what this means is they actually could worship Yahweh. They could participate in their temple practices. They could speak their language with one major caveat, one major exception. At the end of the day, you could do all of those things, but at the end of the day, you have to proclaim that Caesar has the final authority over everything. At the end of the day, actually, you have to bow down before Caesar and proclaim him as Lord and God, right? Okay, so you can practice your religion, but you have to proclaim Caesar ultimately as Lord and God. This caused a problem for the Jewish people because they have this whole no other gods before Yahweh thing that they have to wrestle with, right? So there, there became at this time among the Jewish world, they were wrestling with these questions. Okay, we're under a pagan oppressor who doesn't recognize Yahweh. What does it mean to be the people of God? How are we going to be vindicated? How are we going to be set free? And what does this even look like? So there arose several different people groups who tried to answer that question. And each of those people groups had a narrative or a story that they followed that answered those questions for them. The first group was called the Pharisees. Okay, and the Pharisees were a group of people that believed that holiness was really what was essential. Okay, holiness, lack of holiness is probably what got them in that uh, Roman occupation in the first place. And holiness is what would get them out of it. The Pharisees believed in a future resurrection. They believed in miracles. But they spent most of their time trying to create laws and the intricacies of laws that would separate people who were holy from people who were unholy. So if you had sin in your life, or even if you looked like you had sin in your life, or if you were sick, which according to their view meant that you probably had sin in your life, then we were to separate from you. There would be a holy people and an unholy people, and God would one day recognize that we were the true, pure, holy people because we separated from everybody else. So the narrative of the Pharisees was a narrative of separation. There was a second group, and this group was called the Zealots. 
right? And the zealots believed that it was really military strength that would be the ultimate goal and the ultimate way that God's people would be delivered from captivity. They believed that probably what was best is that the Jewish people would rise up and have a revolt against the Roman Empire. They also believed that holiness was essential, but they believed that if you weren't holy, it was probably better if we would just kill you and get you out of the way, right? So this, the, the narrative of the zealots was a narrative of military might and strength, okay? There was a third group of people, and this group was called the Essenes. And this group believed that Jewish civilization was beyond hope, okay? They were already going down the toilet. They were beyond hope. And so really, our best option is just to escape, just to run away. So if we can get out of here, if we can go set up our own utopian communities out in the desert, we can prove ourselves to be the true people of God, and then hopefully God will just blow up everybody else. That was part of the hope of the Essenes. John the Baptist, interesting enough, many people believe was part of the Essenes group. But we see him at the beginning of his ministry here coming out of the desert and into civilization to proclaim repentance and baptism. Okay? And there was a fourth group, final group. This group was called the Sadducees, and they were very sad, you see. Do you like what I did there? Wasn't that nice? Yeah. The Sadducees looked at the Roman Empire, and they said, these guys must be doing something right. They have this huge empire, extends from here to here. It's, it's amazing. There's this financial component to, us, to it. They've worked out this system where we can kind of practice our religion and our cultural practices and all that stuff. So maybe we should just hitch our horses to their wagon, right? Maybe we should just jump in with the Roman Empire. They have so many of these external results. But the challenge with this was the Roman Empire promised peace. But at the end of the day, if you didn't proclaim Caesar and Lord, as Lord and God, you were brutally killed. It's not the kind of peace that we would recognize, right? Now, among all of these narratives, there was one group of people that was always left out. One group of people that always found themselves on the margins of power. One group of people for whom none of these narratives seemed to make sense. These were the sinners, right? The prostitutes, the lepers, and the sick. The Pharisees saw this group and they thought, well, they're the problem. We need to separate from them. The Zealots saw this group of people and thought, well, they're probably expendable. We should probably just go ahead and kill them and get them out of the way. The Essenes saw this group and they were just trying to run away from them. The Sadducees saw this group of people and they said, well, they're not really productive or really good for anything. There's no external kind of results, right? But this was the group of people that first resonated with the narrative of Jesus. This was the group of people that Jesus began to gather around himself. This was the group of people that responded to the narrative of discipleship. Jesus said that he came for the sick, not the healthy. He partied with sinners and tax collectors. He actually healed lepers, but not only did he heal their physical body, but when they were healed, that meant that they were actually brought back into community. They were able to worship in the temple again. So when Jesus does that, it's not just the physical healing, even though that's huge, but he's also restoring relationship there. When Jesus uh, healed on the Sabbath, he actually ticked off the Pharisees pretty bad, right? What James and John don't recognize in our passage is that authority and power are being radically redefined in this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. It's not a kingdom of military strength. 
It's not a kingdom of separation, but of drawing close. It's not a kingdom of escape, and it's not a kingdom primarily of external results. The way of Jesus actually looks like failure to all of those other narratives, right? N.T. Wright says this, At the heart of Jesus' subversive agenda was the call to his followers to take up the cross and follow him, to become his companions in the alternative kingdom story he was enacting. My proposal is that Jesus took his own story seriously. He would himself travel the road he had pointed out to his followers. He would turn the other cheek. He would walk the second mile. He would take up the cross. He would be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. He would be Israel for the sake of Israel. He would defeat evil by letting it do its worst to him. In the narr- these narratives we just talked about, turning the other cheek looks like weakness right? Leaving the 99 to go after the one. Well, that just seems impractical. <laughs> doesn't seem to make sense. The cross looks like failure. It looks like you lost according to these narratives. And you can see why the disciples probably thought after the crucifixion and the burial that this whole thing was over, right? That they had tried really hard and they, they found this guy that they really liked and he said some great things, but he died. So it must be over. In the Roman world, if you were crucified because of your beliefs, means maybe, maybe you tried really hard, but you failed. Rome won. They defeated you. You were a loser. That is what that meant at that time. But this is the cup that Jesus is speaking of here. He says it's a cup of, this cup of wrath that's spoken about by the prophet Jeremiah. Jesus is about to take all the evil and all the sin and all the brokenness and all the destruction of the world and put it upon himself for our sake. And when he says he sits in glory, he means the cross. That is glory. Power and authority in the kingdom of God is upside down. It's not a narrative of conquering or separating. It's a narrative of sacrifice and unconditional love. Jesus is saying that if you're to follow him, you're to follow him in that, right? And I would contend that Not only does the narrative of Jesus run contrary to all the narratives of the first century, but it runs contrary to all of the narratives of the 21st century of our lives. So what does it mean to follow Christ today? What does it mean to be a servant of all, to lay down our life? And that's a question I want to stir up. I don't think we can provide a lot of easy answers today, but hopefully we can stir up that question in our lives. First of all, what does it mean to serve Christ and follow in the way of discipleship in your marriage? My parents talked about this last week. What does that look like? In our marriages, what does it mean to follow Christ in the way of discipleship? I think we, we live in a culture that tells us a narrative about marriage that says marriage is really about just finding somebody to meet your needs, needs of companionship, whatever it is, finding somebody to meet your needs, or somebody who just reflects your own wants and desires, your own hopes and expectations. But perhaps marriage, this difficult and this beautiful thing that we call marriage, is about something a lot deeper than that. Perhaps marriage is about laying down our life for another person and reflecting the unconditional love of Jesus. Maybe marriage is about being a signpost to the rest of the world about this kingdom of God that's broken into our present, right? How about with our relationships, our friendships? What does that look like? Laying down your life does not mean, as we often think, doesn't mean just being a doormat, right? 
doesn't mean just kind of laying down and letting people kind of passively walk over us. That's not what we're talking about. When Jesus chose to enter our world, it was an active choice out of his love. It wasn't like God was sitting there and he saw that the world was just really sinful and everything was breaking apart. And he was like, oh no, I'm going to look really bad for creating this world. I really need to step in and die for them. No, it was an active choice. He saw the state of our world and he said, I choose out of my love to die for them, to step into their place. So when we lay down our lives for one another, it's not out of our own fear and insecurity. It shouldn't be. But it should be that we desire to lay down our lives as a reflection of Christ. What does it mean to follow Christ at work, in our workplace? This can be really hard because on the job, a lot of the narratives that we're told is that really uh, power and authority is about trampling and dominating the competition, right? Or uh, it's about manipulating our way to the top. I had an uh, a interesting experience I, when I bought my second car of my life. I was a sophomore at ORU. It was my first grown-up car, first one that I made payments on, 1996 Nissan Maxima. I was really happy. I love that car. My sister actually drives it today. And uh, I re- really love that car, but I, I met with the salesman, and the salesman was a person that was recommended to us by somebody in the church. And we met with him, and, and he was talking to us, and he was making it really clear that we were going to get a substantial discount because my dad was a pastor, okay? So we were going to get a really good discount. And he was saying, we are going to really hook you up, and I like people like you. I like people in full-time ministry. It's going to be awesome. But then he said, and these are his words, not mine, but he said, uh, on the other hand, uh, I had this uh, atheist, liberal, Democrat woman come in the other day. I ripped her off. I got so much money out of her. And even then, I knew there's something wrong with that, right? (laughs) This guy is living by a counterfeit narrative. Somehow he believes that this kingdom of God thing is about trampling everybody else, right? And trying to attain a certain amount of riches or something for the kingdom of God. Uh, But I do believe that it is possible In light of all of those narratives, I believe it's possible to live for Christ and live as a disciple in the workplace. I really do. I think there is something beautiful about somebody who's actually um, seeking out a business deal that benefits both sides. There's something actually sacred, I think, about that, right? There's something about somebody who goes to work day after day after day and actually lays down their life and chooses to live in their workplace for the glory of God. Something awesome about that. Now, the church is not immune to these counterfeit narratives either, right? We as pastors, um, we're often tempted to live by other narratives that run our lives. Sometimes as pastors, we are tempted to only see ourselves as, as, as good as our last sermon or our last pastoral care encounter or the last event that we planned, right? Um, I had an experience about four years ago that was really forming and shaping for me. I preached a sermon that was very misunderstood by a good chunk of the congregation. And I had a lot of conversations after that. And there were lots of really difficult moments and things got worse before they got better. And I've still felt the ripple effect of this, you know, several years later. And it was really tough because at that time, as difficult as this was for me, I knew why there was misunderstanding. There were generational gaps there. There were personality differences there. Um, There were some really challenging things, but it became very hard. It was a really difficult time at that point. 
And I was tempted to live by some counterfeit narratives. I was tempted, just like maybe the narrative of the zealot, to fight for what I believed at all costs, right? To kind of push people out of my way, not literally take up arms. I, I wasn't really there, but, but, to, <laughs> but to kind of fight for I believe, what I believed and push through. I was tempted, like the narrative of the Pharisees, to separate myself from these people. Well, if they don't like me and they don't like what I have to say, then forget them and I'm just kind of walk, walk away from them and not really spend time with them. I was tempted, like the narrative of the Essenes, to escape. Well, I got to go somewhere else. I got to go to another city or another church or, you know, something like that. I got to get out of here. But the one that was probably the most difficult for me was one kind of of accommodation, like the Sadducees, that said, uh, maybe I am who they say I am. Maybe that's, um, maybe I actually, that's actually accurate. And began to really doubt myself. One of the things I was really blessed by is to have some family and some friends that really challenged this in me and challenged me to not live by the narrative that they were describing me by. To not live by any of these counterfeit narratives, but to choose the way of discipleship and to recognize that the way of discipleship is difficult and it's hard and often there's misunderstanding. But now I know too that I learned a lot from this experience. I learned maybe to communicate a little bit differently sometimes, and the way I communicate can be a little bit better. But ultimately, what I learned through this is to, I have to root myself in the narrative of Jesus. I have to root myself in the way of being a disciple. So, so important. Maybe you've had a similar experience to this. Maybe you've had a misunderstanding, or you've had some sort of thing where you're tempted to follow all of these narratives. And maybe that's our encouragement today. How do we continue to go back to the way of the disciple? I think when we follow these counterfeit narratives, when we allow these external pressures to come on us, that's really what stress is, right? Stress and busyness are not the same thing. Sometimes we confuse those two. Um, somebody can be too busy and physically just too busy, they just have too much to do, and not be stressed, right? That stress is allowing external pressures or outside narratives to affect us in some way that there's kind of a response or negative response from us. So maybe our question today and our challenge is how do we define authority in our lives? How do we define power? How do we define success? How do we define glory in our lives? Ultimately, Jesus did have someone on his right and his left when he entered his glory. They were robbers, and they died with him. The way of glory looks like failure to the narratives of this world. Sometimes it looks like failure. The way of discipleship seems often like a failed road. And Jesus not only suffered, but he also was rejected. Suffering and rejection are two different things. Somebody can suffer and be praised all the way through their suffering. Rejection is something different. Jesus was rejected. His vocation was rejected. His mission was rejected. And I think as disciples of Jesus, we not only carry the suffering, participate in Christ's suffering, but we also participate at times in his rejection, right? This is a difficult road. Now, the beautiful reality of this is the cross was not the end of the story, right? The tomb was not the end of the story, that Jesus Christ rose again. And it's this resurrection that infuses the crucifixion with its meaning, right? That's what makes it so important. But sometimes we emphasize the resurrection and we forget about the cross, but there's not a shortcut, right? Before new life, there's death. 
before Sunday, there's Friday. We are called to lay down our lives, to lose our lives so that we can find it. The way of discipleship is so much richer and so much deeper than any of the narratives of our world. So much so. But it's also so much harder. It's so easy to fall into the different counterfeits of our world. Here's the cool thing. At the very end of this passage, Jesus says that he came as a ransom for many, right? That, that he came to liberate us and to set us free from all of these narratives of power and to lead us into something new. Now, he did this not just for our own personal and individual fulfillment. He didn't just set us free so that, yeah, I'm a free person and, you know, all is good. He, he freed us so that we can be something in the world, right? So that we can carry this kingdom forward, so that we can point to all of these systems of power and say, there's a better way. There's a better way beyond this that is healing and restoring the world. So what I want us to do this week is um, let's sit with this for a while and begin to maybe even daily ask ourselves, what does the way of discipleship look like when I go to work today or when I go to school today? What is the way of discipleship? What is laying down my life, being a servant of all look like with my spouse or with my family today? How about this friendship encounter that I'm about to have? How can I lay down my life for somebody else? And may we be a people who are led into this better story, into this better narrative that is healing and restoring the world. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you're leading us into something new, um, something that's so much better, that all of the narratives of power in our world are just a parody to. Um, Lord, thank you for leading us into that. Thank you for setting us free. Lord, we confess today that we're often tempted towards some of the other stories in our life. We're tempted to kind of come with strength and fight our way to the top. Or we're tempted to separate ourselves from others. Or Lord, we're tempted to escape. We're tempted to accommodate. But Lord, thank you that you have shown us this way. It's a difficult way. The road is narrow. But Lord, thank you that it is so rewarding. And we trust that resurrection's on the other side. We praise you and we thank you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks. kingdom of God. It's different than what we're, we're used to, isn't it? Did this stir some things in you? I thought about my own life in some areas, and I thought how many times I've gone through a situation, and I thought if I, can just, if I can just be better, if I can just work harder, if I can just be more perfect somehow, then that's going to fix this and separate myself. You know, we're in an interesting um, season politically, aren't we? You know, I've wonder about zealots. Sounds I hear them on both sides of the aisle. As a matter of fact, I hear a, an attitude oftentimes that now they're not actually picking up weapons, but I if if words could words could kill, there'd be a lot of killing going on. Um, if we we just need to get rid of them. We just need to get their bad. I hear that on both sides. Do you know what's going to happen if that happens? We're all, everybody's gone. <laughs> Nobody left, right? We can, now yes, we should, we should vote. Absolutely. We're responsible citizens. We need to do that and vote our conscience. But we will never, if you, if you got all of your people in, all of your men and women that you think are the right ones in, 
it will never be the kingdom of God. It's never going to fully do it. We will all, it's, it's still, a, it's a different system. Kingdom of God is up here. Politics, economics, those things down here, they should be affected by the kingdom, but they're different. We've got to realize they're different. I thought times I've had situations in my life where I've been misunderstood, as Preston talked about, or, or um, there's been some rejection or whatever, and it is so easy to just pull away from those folks. It's not going to talk to them anymore. Just pull away, continue to fight, to push back. That's not the, that's not the kingdom. Convicted about that. Are we in situations where we just kind of accept it all because there's, there's stuff that's just bigger than all this? How can we just kind of water it all down and accept it all? So, stirred some things up in us today. Let's just let this settle this week. And, and what is it that God's saying to us about the kingdom? Something that He wants to do that's different than what we live in, what we're used to. Why don't you stand your feet this morning? Let's lift our voices. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. prayer team is going to be here at the cross. If you need prayer for anything, we're in this together. Some of you may be struggling with one of those narratives that's affecting something that's going on in your life. I encourage you to somebody stand with you in prayer. You may be sick in your body, whatever is going on. I want to stand with you. And we, as you go, we just want to remind you of, of what God wants for you. May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May his wonderful face turn towards you and give you peace. Go in peace. Have a great week. Bless you as you go.